You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Today, my guest is Sheila Wentz. She's the founder of Stand Up Studios in D.C. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Gail. I came to know Sheila because I decided that I wanted to conquer one of my biggest fears. And I had this fear of comedy. I had this fear of being able to tell a joke. I have this weird part of my brain that I can only remember the punchlines of jokes. I can never remember the setup of jokes. And I was scrolling around the internet and looking for comedy classes so that I could go see what it was all about. And Sheila's stand-up studios, DC, popped up. And I thought, why not conquer this fear and find out if I had what it took to at least stand up on the stage and make a complete fool of myself. But I was so surprised by the class. It was so inspiring. And it was a small class, only eight people. And Sheila was the master teacher for the class. So Sheila, is my experience similar to a lot of the students that you have in your class? Uh, yes, I, I, I would say so. I was putting together a list, and since I've been in D.C., I've probably had about 300 um, students, you know, people from all walks of life, and they all get a chance to perform like you did, and they all have done very well, you know, and I would say about 40% of them are now regular comedians out there, you know, doing open mics and shows, and so I think... Uh, it's fun for everybody, you know. I think everybody has that that dream that they want to try something like that, you know. And would you say it's a pretty diverse crowd? I was only in one class that had eight students in it. We had men, women, we had gay, straight, we had people my age, we had young people, we had um, an Indian American, we had a Middle Eastern American, and it seemed like it was the most diverse place in D.C. I know. It really it, it really is. I mean, compared to Los Angeles, I have um, people that don't even speak the language. Like right now at uh, the college where I also teach, I have a man from Japan who can barely even speak English. <laughs> but he's actually <laughs> very funny, you know. So, um, yeah, it is very diverse. And I've learned a lot about different cultures, ethnicities, you know, I get to ask people, is this PC? Is this not? You know, it's, um, that's the one good thing. And it's all, you know, it's not just millennials. It's a lot of professionals, um, you know, people over 40, a lot of doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, and, you know, my mother's like, really? Those people want to do comedy? And I said, <laughs> yeah, everybody does. You know, everybody assumes it's just going to be, uh, 25-year-olds, you know, but it's not. Um, and that's what's so fun about it, you know, and that's why the shows are so fun because people don't get to see that every day, you know? Right. And how did you get interested in comedy in the first place? What, uh, oh, path did you have that made you, uh, I guess, competent to be able to teach such a class? You know, um, I... I mean, I could give you the whole history, but what what comes to mind is my mother has these report cards from, like, nursery school where the teacher writes about your, you know, Sheila's doing very well in reading. And it all, all the reports always say, she has quite the sense of humor, 
you know, meaning I was kind of probably always cracking jokes from the time I was five, you know. Um, uh, and I, I got into comedy, um, you know, I, I never wanted to be a comedian, but I found a college, and I remember sitting in my bedroom, and they had a, Norman Lear had a comedy workshop that he founded at this college, and I said, I want to go there. Um, and when I went, yeah, and I went there, it was Emerson College in Boston. Um, lots of great comedians came from there, Jay Leno, Stephen Wright, you know, tons of them. And um, that's when I, I realized I loved comedy writing, you know, even though I was a writer since I was a little kid. So, um, yeah, it was just sort of like I found, I found a place to be a weirdo. It was great. <laughs> So was Norman um, Lear a graduate of Emerson, too, or how did he end I up? Think, I mean, he's pretty much a dean of the comedic uh, yeah, genre, I think he right? Was. I think he was. There were a lot of television. Now it's a huge television production film. You know, uh, Larry David's daughter, speaking of uh, what's his name, um, went there or goes there. Um, yeah, I think Norman Lear did, but he, he founded a, uh, you know, a comedy writing, you know, sketch comedy group there. It was called the Norman Lear Comedy Workshop. I think it still is. He just um, visited the college, I think, a couple months ago, too. And, yeah, he's very active there. So I think that's how. And he'd come visit, come to the shows, you know. Um, so do you yeah. see comedy as really focused on the writing? Is that the core skill that a comedian needs is the ability to write? I believe that only because that's my my thing. But I really think that to be, you know, a lot of people I teach go, yeah, I'm really funny. I just want to get up and talk and riff. And I said, well, that's great, but you're never going to get on television. Um, it really is. It is about the words. It's about the rhythm. It's about the right word. It's about the way it's said. Um, uh, yeah, I, I really think, I mean, some people don't have to be. You can have a big personality and be super charismatic and goofy. Um, but the best of the best, it comes down to the, to the words, you know, um, what you're saying and the way you're saying it. And um, that's what I try to teach. But people don't, people are like, I don't like to write. And they don't like, you have to be a good editor. It's all about, you know, uh, yes. down into the perfect, you know, um, I think Jerry Seinfeld said it's a lot like writing music, and it really is, you know. Um, and then it just comes out of your mouth naturally, but that's from, that's from polishing it up, you know. Like, oh, it just sounds like conversation, and that's where the art comes in. It's making something that you've written, um, thought of, then written, rewritten, performed, making it sound like you just thought of it. Um, you know, and that takes skill and work. But people think it's just uh, easy. No, it's definitely not not easy. And I think you hit on a really important point that it's the editing that's so important. Because mm -hmm. I I feel like I can write voluminous amounts of material on anything, mm -hmm. uh, but the really hard part, the part that is just a killer, is to go back and have to edit it. And like you said, hone it down. And I remember this in the class, you really had to make sure that um, you had an economy of words. And I can't remember mm -hmm. if it was Stephen King or someone else said, you have to kill your little darlings. And that certainly applies oh, yeah. to comedy too, right? Mm-hmm. It does. It does. It start, you know, um, 
Yeah, and you have to know why it's funny. A lot, of, you know. You remember, I was like, "Why are you making open statements, or why are you giving so much, so much exposition? Who cares?" I would say, "Who cares? Who cares?" You know, get to the point. I, I'm an editor. You know, I was a, a business writer too, so I can look at it on the page and I can circle the meat. And I go, "Look at that! You've got 15 lines, and right there, four four words. You could say it." Um, People don't get that, but eventually they do. Um, and then once you get that, you know, it becomes fun because you can say more funny things in a minute as opposed to talking for a minute and getting one laugh. Why not get five laughs in a minute, you know? That's right. where the and, fun comes in. And you mentioned earlier about asking the students from different backgrounds if this was PC or was it okay to say. And mm -hmm. I'm really interested in exploring what are the third rails in comedy. The third rail is this idea that there's something that if you touch it, it's electrified and you'll just be electrocuted. And mm. I remember in my class, uh, one of the um, other students was making a long joke about killing his ex-wife and hiring a hitman. And it was a joke. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be funny. And everyone in the room just was like mm -hmm. horrified. And this is a group of people who's used to stuff being um, definitely mm -hmm. transgressive and passing the line. Uh, but I think that was something uniformly everyone rejected as not funny. What do you think? Do you think you can tell ahead of time what those third rails in comedy are? Or is it case by case, uh, joke by joke, situation by situation? Um, joke by joke, you mean? Yes. Oh, well, you mean like topics like abuse or rape or homophobia right. or those kinds of things? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, sometimes people come and they do things like that, and I go, no, no. But there was a certain, um, he's a comedian now, and he had a joke about beating your kids. And I said, no, you can't. And then I went and saw him at a show, and all these women, when he said it, stood up and clapped. Like it was a cultural thing. Um, and he meant it as funny, but I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, if you if you feel comfortable, he does it in a comedic way, but if you co feel comfortable saying that, okay. But I've had other people that have, you know, booed when he said it. So um, I'm always like, no, don't even go there because it's not worth it. It's not worth turning the audience on you for one line or, you know, Nazi jokes or somebody I'm working with now wants to write about um, – about guns and I said you know I go you have to you have to pick the angle and the perspective so that it's sort of outside of your own feelings and project it onto society and then you're making a commentary as opposed to saying I want a gun you know there's just certain areas you just have to be careful um, but that comes through trial and error I guess with different audiences right right and so yeah. there are so it sounds like you're saying there are things that are very obviously third rails, but some people can mm -hmm. carry it off based on the cultural references or the particular audience. So how much of it is knowing, um, I, it seems like a lot of the people in the class would go to these comedy places like the Beer Baron, mm -hmm. and you, do they know who their audience is gonna be there? Do they, do they know the type of people who go to these places? Or I, I'm not sure as a comedian, how much do you know what the audience is going to be receptive to, or is it just a process of continuing 
to try. Or I, I would suspect the audience can vary wildly from place to place. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it definitely can. You know, um, it, that only comes through experience, you know. Um, it, only through experience. Like when I used to do the road in the Midwest, I had a completely different act than I had for L.A. or New York, you know. They didn't want to hear about family dysfunction. Um, they weren't that interested in my 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 clever uh, ways of saying things, you know. So I had to um, be more jokety joke joke, uh, which isn't really my style, but I made it my style. And sometimes I'd be like, "Really, seriously, you're laughing at that? That was so easy, <laughs> you know." Um, right. I want, right. Yeah, I, I go. I want you to get the more obscure stuff, the things that I think are funny. But yeah, you have to. That's your job as a comedian. It can't be like I'm. You know, I'm great, and if you don't get it, well, too bad. You know, you have to, and that's only through trial and error. You have to. You know, you got to get to different cities. That's why I tell all my students: get out of D.C., go to the outskirts, go to somewhere up in Virginia, somewhere, and just see what regular people having a drink think about it, you know, and if they laugh, you know, three or four times, keep it in your act. It's funny, you know. Um, yeah, that's it's just trial and error and stage time. There's no, like, easy way to, you know, there's no easy way to get there quickly and go, well, this is great, you know, because it might work in one city, but it might not work in another. So you think that New York and D.C. and L.A. audiences might be more cynical in which I'm not saying they're smarter, obviously, but they they have yeah. a more jaded way of looking at life than perhaps people that you might uh, be able to connect with in the Midwest. Yeah, I don't know if it's cynical. Um, I think it's. I'm talking about the old style comedy club where you know the room's set up for comedy. There's nothing else to do but drink and look at the stage, right? And that's why they come there. Um, Whereas people here, you know, might be like, oh, I just came out for a drink. Who's this idiot at the microphone talking? Oh. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the kind of audience you should get at, like, open mics or, wow. you know. And, yeah, it's, just, um, it's a different atmosphere. You have to, I think it's harder to perform in a small, uh, you know, alternative room in, in a city for 11, you know, smart people than it is for 500 people at a comedy club. That's a cakewalk, you know? Right, right, um, right. Yeah. But I, I don't sense. think they're more cynical. Have you ever been heckled by anyone? Not that much, but once when I was in uh, Japan, I was doing these air bases. Oh, my God. I was over there for like six weeks. I didn't know what I was doing. Um and I, and I had just started, and I was talking about my free gift at the clinic counter to, like, 1,500 airmen. And some guy <laughs> yelled out, <laughs> yelled out, why don't you talk about something we can relate to? And I was, like, wearing a dress. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what my response was to that. But oh, do tell acting, us. Do tell us. It has a dir- dirty word in it, kind of. <laughs> it's okay. This I is think, uh, this is fine. This is safe space. <laughs> I I can't remember verbatim, but I said, you mean something like your little dick? You know, it just came out of my mouth. And then they roared, and I completely turned. But when I came back to L.A., people were like, you're different. And it was like I had microwaved my um, confidence in six weeks over there because, you know, it was all men. There weren't a lot of women. Um, so I had to, you know, all my clever little things, you know, ha, 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 counter. It was like, oh, brother, I better... 
you know, get with the program. And it gave me a lot of confidence, but it was also like the scariest thing I ever did. Um, so, yeah. Did you expect so it to yeah. be so scary ahead of time or did it surprise you because you didn't expect it? I expected it because it was this crazy, ugh, you don't even want to know, this crazy, you know, the, the headliner was some like drug addict who didn't even show up for the flight. I wound up going to Misawa, Japan, 24 hours. Like nobody picked me up. I didn't know where I was. Um, they put me in some like bunker and then woke me up and said, okay, you got to go do a show. Um, so I was sort of in a daze, but I thought, you know, then it was the guys and the next day it was the officers club and having brunch and I'm standing in front of like the bacon and eggs doing comedy <laughs> for officers and their wives. It was like so weird, but, um, yeah, I kind of blocked it from my memory. Uh, it was understandably so traumatic, but it was fun. But and again, it was like, we got to be funny everywhere for every kind of audience, you know? Right, and I think that's the really tough thing because I I had that experience in the class. I have yeah. a very different life history than the other people in the class. And mm -hmm. so you feel like from comedy, you have to draw from your own experiences. So a lot of my my routine was based on interactions with my kids and interactions mm -hmm. professionally. And it's kind of like the Clinique counter. I get anything about a Clinique counter, I get. But if, <laughs> if you start talking about like the hookup culture of millennials, like I, it's right. funny, it's amusing, it's also horrifying, but. <laughs> right. But you did great, right? Remember, I thought, oh God, she's going to be talking about politics and this. Here comes this smart lady. I was so excited, but. They loved you when you did your act, remember? Because you were being honest. And you never yes. even talked about really your career that much. You mentioned being an attorney, and then you wrapped it up at the end, remember? So yes. I think because you took the time to do the work in a very short amount of time, the audience, like I say, the audience appreciates the person that creates the work. It might not be out of the ballpark hilarious, but they, they recognize what you've done. You've put together a piece for them, you know, with a sort of a beginning, middle, and end. And that shows them, I'm the artist here. I'm the comedian, and you're the audience, you know? It's like if you just go up there and goof around, people are like, I could do that. Right. I do that all the time at work, you know? So you, you kind of commanded some respect, and people were really, you know, really enjoying you. Well, I loved it. I, I remember you. It, it was a story. It was the idea of the storytelling mm -hmm. and people were really good at that in the class. And, and I liked mm -hmm. having, you know, the ability to kind of tell my story because with that stage, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's so freeing. Yeah. yeah, it is freeing. And you can, yeah, that's why I tell, I try to encourage people like, why do you want to talk about that? It's already been talked about. Who are you? You know? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of originality, but, um, I don't think that many people are, but yeah, like you can talk about whatever you want. And I think women are a little bit um, better at talking about themselves than, than most men are. So it kind of came naturally to you. I think you're right. And it is interesting. There was another man in the class who um, was Catholic and also from the Middle East. And he mm -hmm. talked a lot about himself and was very vulnerable. And, you know, he mentioned that his father was a psychiatrist. And so I'm sure he mm -hmm. had done a lot of self-analyzing over the years. Mm -hmm. 
but I, it was interesting because you do get a chance to know these other people so much. You feel bonded to them. And I yeah, think yeah. it's that the idea that you're sharing of yourself and you're learning something new, you're, you're getting out of your comfort zone, the, you know, the cliche, but it's true. And uh, you mentioned with me, you thought, you know, maybe I would do something about politics. But I am curious, what do you think about political com comedy? It seems like the um, famous comedians who do that tend to specialize in political comedies. I'm thinking of Bill Maher, um, mm -hmm. John Stewart, Samantha Bee. And yeah, how do you think, yeah, how do you think that falls into the overall comedy world? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's great and it's really necessary, um, you know, especially today. And I think a lot of people go to that for their news, but uh, they also go to it for their opinions, you know. Um, and as far as comedy goes, DC, nobody does. Nobody that I've taught has done political humor. And um, a few people have told me the audiences don't want to hear it if they try it, which I, I think um, is interesting. You know, they'll laugh at Bill Maher, but people I know have said they tried to talk about this in the audience. One girl told me the audience just shut down. So um, I think they're afraid to laugh because what if you're offending the person over there who sees them laughing? And I don't know. It's just very strange. So That um, is strange. Maybe, yeah. But I, but people forget too that Stephen Colbert and John Oliver and all those people—they have a team of writers that are writing their stuff for them. And um, if you're going to do political comedy, if you can't say it better than you know Bill Maher, then it's probably <laughs> going to be derivative. You know, right. it's very hard to be original because everybody's tweeting and posting about their opinions. And, you know, it's like we've heard it before. Um, so a lot of people want to go up and say, yeah, I've heard that before. You know, unless you can come up with a really unique point of view on it that people maybe haven't thought of and it's funny, then that's great. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think people that are doing comedy around here are kind of leaving it to the professionals. You know? That is a great point. Uh, we saw yeah. kind of a big controversy. I couldn't. I was so happy that I had you coming on to talk today because it seems ah. the biggest, well, generally, because I love you and I so oh. enjoy your class and I admire you so much. And I also felt like you coming on today was so well-timed. Uh, you are so mm. experienced in this. And Saturday Night Live has had mm. such a place in our culture for decades. And you see so many of the top comedians come from the training ground of Saturday Night Live and then go on and do other interesting projects. Well, Saturday Night Live obviously has done a lot of political comedy, comedy. And this past Saturday, Pete Davidson, one of the comedians on Saturday Night Live, uh, was mocking a congressional candidate who lost an eye in battle when he was mm -hmm. serving U.S. as a Navy SEAL, and he lost an eye as part of an attack by an IED, I think by the Taliban. I think he was in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And this has become, you know, paid front page right. news about this. And I thought, gosh, here's a perfect example of something. Is this a, is this a third rail in comedy? And did he go too far? Not to get into the politics of it, but is this, is this obviously... Mm -hmm 
not, a, you know, you shouldn't make fun of vets for body parts that they right. lost while serving the country. Or is it the side of comedy, which is transgressive and it's the very essence of what comedy is about? Or is it some third thing? Well, I watched that, you know, um, and I don't think he was making a statement at all. I mean, it's called Saturday Night Live. I don't know if they have tape delay or if they do it at 5 o'clock or... I don't, I don't know, but if, if they could have edited... It just seemed like he's like a 24-year-old guy. I think he's a stand-up. I don't know that much about Pete Davidson. But I think he just threw it out there, and he thought it was funny. You know, eye patch, he looks like he's in a porno. Um, and then he just said, whatever... And that just seemed like a, a 24-year-old thing to say. Um, it didn't seem like he planned it. You know, I think he uh, thought that, like, somebody wrote those or he maybe wrote those things. Oh, he looks like a cigar. He looks like this. He, it, was, it seemed a little puerile to me. And then he said something um, that he couldn't take back. And I think the audience might have, he might have picked up the vibe after he said porno uh, about Dan Crenshaw. Right. And then, and then he just kind of stumbled and said, you know, whatever. That's, that's the feeling I got that it wasn't planned. Um, you know, and then, I, I, you don't want to get me started on that. But, you know, the ironic thing is I think his father was a firefighter who lost his life in 9-11. You know, Pete Davidson, I'm pretty sure that's true. And, you know, turn the tables. What if somebody had re- made a remark like that? How would he feel? Right. You know? Right, right. And uh, related to that, um, I learned something in the class about, I never knew this, but when actors and comedians and those folk go on these late night shows, you showed Mm -hmm. us an example. I can't remember. Oh, Amy Schumer and Mm -hmm. how she was interacting. I forget who the host was, but it was all planned. Conan. Conan. I had no idea. Those were planned. So when I mm-hmm. think about that in relation to Pete Davidson, when you watch the clip, it does seem like it just seems idiotic what he's saying. Um, but it's hard to believe, like now that I know behind the curtain that those mm-hmm. uh, interactions, the interviews with people like Amy Schumer and Conan O'Brien are, are mm-hmm. which, which you picked up on in part, or you showed us that like part of what she said to Conan O'Brien was a bit that she has repeated. Right. many times mm-hmm. so it's it's not mm-hmm. a, it's not like this extemporaneous speech coming out of Amy Schumer it's this is this is the mm-hmm. funny response I have to this line of questioning so with Pete Davidson you know I wonder it is interesting to think about how much that was discussed ahead of time and yeah. uh, why they they thought that that would be it. And I think your point about his, his dad and possibly being a firefighter in, you know, respond dying in nine 11. Um, that is just, we have such a rich history and to understand that in relation to comedy. Um, I, I think it, it is definitely something that is newsworthy. Yeah. I mean, you know, Saturday night live, it's, it's controversy is always good for, for ratings. You know, um, ah. you know, but I don't think, um, yeah, I just, I just think that, that they thought it was funny. They probably, a bunch of dudes probably sat around and wrote this card at three in the morning, you know, um, maybe there was a woman writer involved, but I doubt it. And, you know, it's just sort of that frat boy mentality to throw stuff out. Like, I don't think a more seasoned, um, like a Tina Fey would ever 
you know, uh, right. say, this is, I'm going to say this on Weekend Update. You know what I mean? It just had that, like, silly frat boy humor that I don't really think is funny. But the people, right. the audience laughs. So, um, you know, but I, you can be a lot more clever. You know, anytime you say somebody looks like a porn star, you're saying, it's just easy, you know? Right, um, right, right. Well, it's kind of like um, Michael Avenatti, the Stormy Daniels uh, lawyer. He gets referred to a lot as the creepy porn lawyer. So, I mean, that that's kind of right. the point, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just, yeah, it is offensive, but I think everybody's looking to get into Twitter wars and, you know, everything's so PC, you know, that that, that, that becomes the news for 24 hours until somebody else says something stupid and ruins their career you know it's like every day it's something new so right well that's that is kind of my final question for you I want to know Mm -hmm. if you think comedy has changed we're talking about how sometimes somebody makes a joke and they might lose a career over it or they might get a lot Mm -hmm. of uh, opprobrium from you know Mm -hmm. the uh, twitter wars or however it is do you think I mean obviously I don't know that much about the history of comedy, but Lenny Bruce, I think, was kind of a transgressive comedian, right? And he broke a lot of the rules about what yeah. comedy was. Do you see that recently, let's say like the last five years, that there has been a big change in comedy? And I know Chris Rock has spoken about not wanting to go to college campuses anymore because he yeah. feels he's too limited. Do you think in your career that comedy has changed a lot or is it just more of the same in five years, well, yeah. I mean, I, there's more women. Um, I certainly have a high percentage of women in my classes, um, and I don't think the audiences care. They don't care what, if it's a man or a woman as long as it's funny. But I think, I think, do you know who Hannah Gadsby is? For example, she had that net, the Australian woman that did that Netflix. Uh, special, gotten a lot of praise. She talked about trauma in her family and homophobia and assault and things that oh, happened in her did. life. And I think a lot, I'm not sure, I, I don't want to say some of the, you know, hardcore male comics are saying, it's not comedy. You know, that's not considered, that's not pure comedy. It's more like a one-woman show. I think it's, I, I loved it. And I think that people are talking, I think women Five years ago, every woman was talking about sex and dating and, and their bodily parts, you know, thinking that that was funny because Amy Schumer did it. Uh, we had a name for them in Los Angeles. Can I say it? It might have a dirty word. We called oh, them labia, com- labia comics. It was like <laughs> I'd count and I'd, I'd sit in the audience and I'd go, okay, ready? How, how soon before they mention their genitalia? And I'd go one and two and three and four. There it is. The oh, first thing great. that we talk about. Wow. One after another. And they're still doing it. Masturbation and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, um, you know, that's what people thought. They, they thought was funny. So somebody like Hannah Gadsby that can, you know, that mixture of pathos and anger and confidence. It's just, I think, I don't know. It's like, um, I, I, I think maybe comedy, she's like making comedy go deeper than um I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, we've heard all that before. We've heard all the jokes and we've heard all the dick jokes and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's exciting, somebody like that that can, you should watch it. Have you seen it on Netflix? I will look it up. And um, yeah. I, it's interesting because it does seem like you're saying it's the repetitive nature. Like once you 
I'm putting my gloss on it, but women getting up there and talking about that in a funny way, maybe broke some barriers or, you know, got attention. It was attention getting, but at this point Mm -hmm. it's kind of same old, same old. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, I, I think for women, they have to be a lot more clever than the men. Um, and, and they're not, they don't have, they're not allowed as much anger. You know, there's, Comedians I really like, like Bill Burr or Louis Black, whatever, and it's like the fuel of their act is anger, but nobody wants to see an angry woman. And that's why I like Hannah Gatsby, because underneath is anger. Um, and she does it in this, this like really sly, self-deprecating way um, that takes the audience down this path. And then, I don't know, it's just, but that requires a great deal of, of cleverness to disguise rage, you know? Um, right. And... And I think that's what I think that's what women need to tap into now with all the Me Too and all this kind of stuff. But but they can't do it blatantly, or they'll turn the audience on them. You know what I mean? Right. Um, just being more. I don't know. I think um, I think if women could just you know be more clever. Right. We don't want to hear about your vagina anymore. There, I said it. <laughs> it's not that interesting. <laughs> right. You know. Um, but that's why it comes down to being a good writer, you know. Um, yeah, because there's certainly room for it. And I don't think, you know, people, the only ones that don't want women um, as much are the club owners in the industry. But the audience never care. They don't care what you look like, how old you are. They don't care. That's my experience. They just want to laugh. You know, Wait, they don't go, so- oh, God, she's over 40 and a woman? <laughs> No, they just want to laugh. So if you can, you know, show them something new and original and different, you know, you'll really, I think you'll really stand out from the crowd. So I catch, I caught something that you said that I want to circle back to. It sounded (laughs) like you said that the club owners in the industry don't want the women. Is that, did I hear that right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, what do you think that that is? Oh, I don't know now, but um, I do know, this is just from, from my friends and three years of experience. It's like I show clips sometimes of Phyllis Diller, who was a beautiful woman yes. um, and a great writer. Um, they don't know who she is. I go, but she had, a, she had to make herself look like a chicken to get on stage, you know? <laughs> um, and I still think that, you know, there's room, but nobody wants, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to sound bitter, but I find that no, that the biggest threat is a smart, attractive woman. Um, and men, like in the writing situations I've been in, if there's any kind of a sexual, like, oh, she's attractive, they don't want her around. So I used to make jokes about um, writing staff on sitcoms, how it would be a bunch of short men and one homely <laughs> woman. And I'd say, now what writing staff might that be? I don't know. That's just opinions across the board from a lot of women comics I know. And again, it's not the audience. They don't care. You know, girls wear sexy clothes on stage now. We used to go, you know, what do you wear? How do you appear? There was a whole era of don't wear any makeup, make yourself look dumpy. Wow. Yeah, that was a big deal in like the 90s. Um, Don't be too glamorous. Uh, Men don't have to think about that kind of stuff. Um, but I do like seeing people like Samantha B and, you know, um, but, but it's still, yeah, there's still, there's still a higher standard 
um, to women. And they also don't want you to be funnier. So if you're all those uh, things and you're funnier, funnier than the men in the room, eh, you might want to tone it down a little bit. That's kind of the vibe. But not yeah. from the audience. They don't care. Well, it reminds That's me of that con- joke that Alicia in our class was telling about. Yeah. That. She told her boyfriend she wanted to do comedy, and he was saying mm-hmm. she was pretty, but not that pretty, mm-hmm. so she could do comedy. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. I don't know. It's just a weird thing. It's, it's too hard to explain. I could write about it, but it's just, it's just one of those things that you feel like a glass ceiling, and you can't really put your um, finger on it, you know? Well, I, I one final question for you. Um, okay. This is the second no this is the third final question now if you were put on the spot to to say who your favorite comedian was besides yourself of course mm-hmm. do you have oh, a Lord. favorite comedian um i do it, i do i always i was always a big fan of jerry seinfeld um and I think it's because I wanted to be him, <laughs> but I appreciate, I always wanted to, I remember I tried to get a job on a show and I actually got a meeting at Castle Rock and they said, how did you even know he had a show? And I said, I've been following him for years and um, nobody knew who he, who he even was, you know? And I just said, this guy's, I don't know. I just, I like the way he, I like him because he's confident um, and he is quick witted. He's funnier just sitting around talking. Um, than most people are on stage. So he's a purist. I just think he's purely a funny person, you know? And he does comedy, but he does it, he does the work. He doesn't ride on his coattails. And the fact that he still does it, when he could, you know, be sitting on an island somewhere for the rest of his life, that, that means he's truly a purist, you know? And I admire that because it's it's an exhausting industry. <laughs> right, because you know? like you said, it's it, it's also risky for him to go out there and continue to perform. Yeah. Because the audience could say, oh, you're over the hill. We don't think you're funny anymore. And yeah. he could, like you said, rest on his laurels. Uh, do you think, like, the, I really key into the thing that you said about how hard work working he was um and Mm. and that was part of it Uh, I think you know would you have advice about that for people who are interested in comedy and if people want to take your classes where would they find Mm -hmm. you oh well they can find me at at standupstudios.com I also do I teach teenagers too which is really fun and I do um private classes you know all over the world when my Skype works um or in person, so that's where I am. Um, my advice is it's a good beginning. You have to start somewhere. You know, you have to learn a little bit about uh, the art form, you know. You need the basics. It's like the, the class is like the building blocks because people go, how do I start? Right. Um, plus, plus, comedy is about community, and for me, you know, going into stand-up was like going to college again. Some of the best friends of my life, and about being with like-minded people and that's where you meet them because it's scary to go to some bar all by yourself at 10 o'clock this way you'll know people and have people to go with you know um and that makes the ride so much smoother you know when you have comrades um to to do it with so that's that's what classes are good for um but i would say it's not a um 
it's just an overnight thing. I think everybody wants to be a comedian. Um, and a lot of my students, they start rooms, and they've got logos and websites and business <laughs> cards. And I go, I go, too soon. I go, you got to get on stage three times a week minimum. Over and over and over. I always had a day job, and I had to get up at night. And you can't over and over. And and don't be parading yourself around as a comedian for at least a year. You know, um, I I tell people it's better not to be seen than to be seen. You don't want to be seen as a newbie. Go out there in the jungles of open mics and hone your craft before you go to the clubs. Before you let them see you at the open mics, at the Laugh Factory. You don't want to be seen too early. Um, and people get excited because they have a good showcase, and then they want to bring all their friends when they've been doing it for four weeks, and it's like, don't, you know? <laughs> I equate it to like a ballet, you know? Like, okay, I took a dance class. Now I want to be in the Nutcracker in Lincoln Center. Oh Not going to happen, you know? Do you know, do you so, know how many years I spent backstage at the Nutcracker in ballet classes with my daughter who took, let me think, 10 years of ballet before she, and she, she you know, just the amount of sweat, work, and effort. So I yes. love that analogy. I couldn't yes. think of a better one. Right. And the analogy is when they get on stage, they look like they're floating through air. They make it look easy. And I go, that's where the art comes in, making it look easy, like, Sometimes somebody came up to me once after a show and was like, I can't believe you just thought of all that on the spot. And I'm like, dude, I wrote, I wrote it 20 years ago. Like, you know, it need, and it needs to be timeless. You know, if you can do, that's another reason I love Seinfeld. He can make $60 million on a Netflix special. And I go, is that bit from 1989? Like he can still do his material. It's timeless. And that's, that's another important thing. You know, um, I mean, if you can make it look easy and, fresh and timeless after 30 years, then, you know, you're a comedian. <laughs> it just takes a long time. That is brilliant. Well, here's to the yeah. next 30 years. And yeah. Sheila, you have been my sensei and also my comrade. Oh. I just want to thank you so much for joining right in D.C. today. Well, thanks for having me. I hope people are interested. I'm like, who's this chick? And who cares what she has to say? But, hey, you never know, right? Absolutely. Oh. And I think I think uh, it was a huge it was it was one of the best experiences of my life, particularly given oh. that I, you know, as I said, I wasn't really into comedy that much. So um, mm -hmm. you made it such a bigger experience than just comedy. And now I don't have that fear anymore. So thank you oh, so well, much. That makes, you. Me happy. that makes me happy. You're welcome. And you were great. I think we should do it again. You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.